Good morning. It's nice to see you. Um, if you haven't, if you don't know who I am, I, most of the faces around I think look vaguely familiar. If you don't know who I am, I'm Simon. Um, where I come from, people call me Jacko. My last name's Jackson. Sort of makes sense. It's not very creative. Um, I'm Jacko. I am the pastor of City Light Church, North Adelaide. Uh, I serve in a small network of churches um, where we have a church of plants um, in Glenelg. We have one now down in Christie's Beach, down south. We have one in Port Adelaide and then North Adelaide. And uh, we are part of an organisation called Acts 29. Um, if you know your Bible, there's no such thing as Acts 29 in the terms of it. You know, Acts finishes at chapter 28, uh, but Acts 29 is all about continuing the work of Christ. Um, you know, Acts 29, this organisation we're part of, is just one part of the many organisations around the world seeking to make Christ known, plant churches, etc. Um, but um, I'm married to Adele. We've been married for a bit over 17 years. We have three children. Stella, she's nine. Bazzy is, or Sebastian, he's six. Uh, Fletcher is two and three quarters. And, uh, you know, I don't know, what else do you want to know about me? I, uh, I like pizza. Um, I, <laughs> I support the Richmond Football Club. Don't hold that against me. Um, but uh, go the Tigers. And uh, anyway, that's enough, right? There you go. That's me. Um, I love Jesus. Uh, I became a Christian when I was 21, so just last year. No, um, I... Uh, I love Jesus, I love, I love serving his people, and uh, we're going to be in the Word today, uh, in Acts, uh, picking it up, picking up this narrative. Um, let's pray, let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for all the good things you give us, and Father, we just ask today that by your Spirit and through your Word, you would refine us, uh, Father, um, assure us of your love, uh, Father, um, by your Spirit, uh, where we are yeah, failing to live a life that's worthy of the calling you've called us to in Jesus. Father, may we repent today, uh, acknowledge our sin and throw us afresh on the Lord Jesus. Uh, Father, stir in us today, Father, through your word, a greater affection for Christ. Uh, Father, and a, a deeper desire to serve him and his purposes um, as we live in this world certain of the next. So change us all, I pray, uh, today to be a little bit more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Over the last few days, Thursday through to Saturday, I was in Sydney. Uh, I mentioned I'm part of this organisation called Acts 29, and we uh, gather each year, last sort of, sort of period, or last week of February each year, um, all the churches uh, across Australia, New Zealand, and now Japan, we gather together in a city in Australia for three days of Bible teaching, some training, some workshops, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so I flew into Sydney, if you know me as well, I lived in Sydney for 13 years, up until about four years ago. And so I have heaps of friends and connections back in Sydney. So over the last three days or so, I've been, you know, like we've been busy, I've been on the go, right? Flat chat from sunrise to sunset and even a bit after the sunset, um, you know, meeting around the Bible, you know, with 400 people from, you know, our network across New Zealand and Japan and things like that. I'm hearing about the wonderful work that God is doing. It's amazing. You, the work that God is doing in Japan is quite spectacular right now. Um, a formerly kind of in many ways, kind of closed country to the gospel. Um, and it's still, the church there is very small. There's some really wonderful things God is doing. God is on the move in that particular country in the world. So it's really encouraging. But So hearing about all these different things, and when I wasn't at the conference, you know, like you go to conferences, you don't go to everything. Um, and so when I was not at everything, I was catching up with old friends and so lots of conversations. And I was just, you know, bam, 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 racing all over the place. It was fast-paced. It was good. It was emotional. It was excellent. 
And I finally got on the plane last night at 5.30, Sydney Airport, and I jumped on, and I'm sitting on the plane, I've got an exit row, how cool is that? Um, the wonder of not travelling with my children means I can get a seat you know, with leg room, it's wonderful. Anyway, um, I'm sitting there, and I, I, just, you know, I had a drink, and, and I just realised that I've been going flat chat, you know, pace, the pace was really high. And in front of me was like, the Jetstar magazine I could read. Uh, next to me, because no one was sitting, it was like the perfect exit seat, right? Leg room everywhere and no one next to me. You know, I could like, just sprawl out. It was great. You know, I had this big book, meaty book on the crucifixion that I was wanting to get into. And I looked at the Jetstar book and I looked at the book next to me and I went, I can't do it. I'm too tired. And I, I think I just sat there staring out the window for like 30 minutes. It was lovely to kind of just slow down and do nothing. We come to this part of the book of Acts, right? If you know the book of Acts, it's all about the first 30 years of the establishment of the Church of Christ, this new, amazing movement of the good news that explodes out of Jerusalem in the first century and then kind of just rockets around the Mediterranean. And, uh, you know, it, it just begins to change the world. Lives are changed, cities are changed, and it's, it's quite dramatic. The pace is really, 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 really fast, up until you get to chapter 20, which Peter read out for us just then. Um, Acts 20, uh, we're not going to dig into Acts 20, we're actually going to dig into Acts 21 today, but Acts 20, the whole kind of pace just slows down and the focus zooms in on this little coastal city called Miletus, and where Paul, the great apostle, who's been kind of part of the pace of the whole thing, just stands there and he calls all the elders of Ephesus, Asia Minor, to kind of come and hear some final words of his. Mostly, right, the book of Acts is all about bold preaching of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and people's lives are being transformed. Acts 20, though, is Paul's kind of last passionate words to a bunch of church leaders. It's unique, actually, in the book of Acts. Most of the speeches or Sermons we hear in the book of Acts are all about, you know, calling people to trust in Jesus or defending the gospel. This is unique. This is Paul, a church leader, speaking to other church leaders. It's the only kind of sort of sermon or speech we have of its kind in the book of Acts. And basically what Paul says to this group of church leaders, um, probably 30, 40 of them, he says, watch your teaching. Be careful what you teach. Be devoted to the word of God. Be devoted to the apostles' teaching. He basically says, in summary of that speech we just heard read before, is um, guide people to the truth, guard people from the wolves. That's pretty much what he says. Um, and then he says a bit about his own life. But basically, you know, point people to the truth of Jesus, guard people from wolves who will push people away from Jesus. That's what he does. Slows down. But then we turn, Acts 21, right? You kind of metaphorically turn the page into Acts chapter 21, which I hope you've all got in front of you right now. Acts chapter 21. Um, you know, you might have sort of been hoodwinked there. I thought we're doing Acts 20. Um, we're doing Acts 21. And uh, the pace, right, picks up again quickly, right? It's like when I got off the plane last night. I sort of got off the plane into an Uber and bam, three children come running out to me. Dad, dad, dad. Like, what did you get me? What presents did you get me? I'm like, aren't you just happy to see me? No. What's in your bag? And they start opening my bags. And I'm like, get your hands off my bags. And then, you know, like little Fletcher comes running out two and three quarters. Oh, Dad, it's so nice to see you. And he gives me a hug. What did you get me? You know, like, like far out, man. Like, is that all I'm good for? And we've set up an unhealthy pattern, I think. I don't really go away that often. Um, anyway, I think they did miss me. 
But uh, the minute I showed them what I got them, it was like, gone, didn't see them. You know, anyway, but the pace, you know, bam, straight into it. So when you turn chapter 21 up, the pace kind of quickens up again. And we follow Paul on this 1,000-kilometer journey from Miletus on the coast of Turkey as he goes across uh, the Mediterranean and crashes into the coast of Israel, um, and then he makes his way into the capital, Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, right, it's where Paul is, he's arrested, he's beaten, he's imprisoned, he'll ultimately be transported in chains to Rome, to the imperial capital. Acts 21 is kind of like the beginning of the last section of this book of Acts. And it's in this chapter, chapter 21, I think that we come across some really beautiful insights into the Christian life and into our mission as God's people. So that's really what I'm going to do today. I'm going to to walk us through some big sections of the text. I'll kind of read them out, and then I'll just make some comments along the way. That's what we're going to do. So have a look with me. Um, We're going to see some wonderful insights. Firstly, have a look with me, Acts chapter 21 and verses 1 to 9. Follow along. Uh, I think it'll be on the screen as well, but let's um, let's have a look together. After um, we had torn out, you know, remember Paul's Miletus, um, he's jumped on the boat, the, the, the people, the Ephesus, the Ephesian leaders are like, oh my gosh, I don't like the fact that we're never going to see you again. And here we go, verse 1. After we had torn, us, torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Cos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed in Tyre where our ship was, so, was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. We, pr- we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed in Ptolemais where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at our house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Um, I don't know, like, we, we don't have all day, right? But I could say a million things, even in this, this little opening section of God's work. If we were kind of just slowly working through the book of Acts, I could, you know, we could do this. But... I just want to zoom in on that verse 9, right? Um, Philip's daughters. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And I want to say something just about women. Uh, women in ministry. That's what I want to say this morning. Um, Luke makes this kind of what seems like a passing reference to daughters of Philip the Evangelist who prophesied. Verse 9. Now, the grammar of this sentence, right, in the original language, in the Greek, makes it clear that this was like their regular thing, Right? They, what, they, they prophesied. That was what they regularly did. Um, it wasn't just, you know, like Paul's arrived, oh, I've got a prophecy because the Apostle Paul's here. It was just, they were four prophesying daughters. That, it literally was their kind of regular ministry. Now, the interesting thing about this, right, in the very next verse, verse 10, we meet Agabus, right, and he also is a prophet and he delivers a message to Paul. What we see Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, regularly doing is he balances men and women all the way through his account. So Luke writes the gospel, Luke's gospel, the account of Jesus' life, and then he does the volume two, which is the ongoing work of Jesus in the Holy Spirit, the book of Acts. 
Scholars note, right, the prominence of women in the Gospel of Luke and Luke's second volume, Acts. There isn't time to show you this, right, but there's a really great commentary on the book of Acts. It's just come out not so long ago by a US guy named Craig Keener. Um, probably, the best, probably the best commentary we have on the book of Acts right now. It's massive. Like, it's sort of four door-stopping books, right? You know, like, you could keep your whole house open with these things, you know, it's, it's massive, it's great. In the introduction, right, in his, verse, in his first volume, in the introduction, he devotes um, 50 pages, right, to an analysis of Luke's treatment of and understanding of the role of women in the life of the church. One of the things he identifies, right, is that in Luke and Acts, um, Luke pairs men with women, um, seems to be a deliberate device, right, built around the theology that Luke actually names earlier in the book of Acts. So in the midst of Peter's first sermon following the resurrection of Jesus, Peter quotes Joel chapter 2, and you see the pairing of men and women in ministry. So have a look at Acts 2, verse 17. It's on the screen, I think. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy... Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Now, I I, I bring this up, right, and you're going, wow, this sounds a bit hardcore, you know, Sunday morning at church. But I bring this up because I want you to recognise that men and women have a place in the ministry and the, the promotion of the gospel in the world. Um, I, I long for you guys, you know, all of us to be a church that, that recognises that both men and women have a role to promote Christ in the church, in the wider community and to the ends of the earth. And I want to say, if our, if our theology, right, doesn't include four prophesying daughters right alongside the prophet Agabus, then I wonder if there's something a little less biblical about our ministry, now, I don't, this, I don't want this to turn political, right? Like, I don't want us to sort of, me to sort of make declarations today on behalf of the leadership of this church. But all I want to say, I want to stress, I, I want to see more women stepping up into promoting the gospel. That's what I want to see. Um, in our context, I sometimes feel like we don't do that enough. So this is maybe just a, like a personal sharing of my own situation. But I think what I see here is that Luke clearly says that women and men together are doing ministry to promote the goodness of Jesus and the glory of God in the world. I'm just going to leave that hanging. I'm going to leave today really quickly so you can just bail up the leaders of the church and you can talk about that. But anyway, um, Paul, I think there's a great thing here for us to remember and and think we're we're together, male and female, in the work of the gospel. And I want to promote that. I want to promote that. So let's pick up the narrative, though, um, with the prophet Agabus... Um, he's going to warn Paul, right? If you go to Jerusalem, you are going to get, you're going to get arrested. And I love, like, you know, if you go, man, you're going to get arrested. Do you know what Paul just says? So what? So what? Love it. Check it out. Verse 10. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says... In this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When he heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. 
After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles and through his ministry. What stands out to me, I don't know, in that passage we've just read, and probably through the whole of this chapter, Acts chapter 21, is just the sheer exertion of people for the gospel. At every turn, in almost every verse of this passage, someone's kind of doing some kind of strenuous activity for the gospel. It's really cool. I mean, have a look at this, right? First up, there's this I don't know, extreme and precarious travel that Paul and his kind of traveling companions took. I mean, often, right, um, we often think, right, it must, be, it must have been lovely, right, to sail across the Mediterranean. Anyone sailed across the Mediterranean before? Um, I don't know, you've, I don't know, go to Genesis Travel up the road here, and I'm sure you'll be able to find a beautiful kind of travel brochure of a, you know, a sailing trip along the, you know, the Mediterranean, cocktails and a beautiful cruise liner with an abundance of seafood, and you, know, you pull into a port and it's just more seafood and more cocktails, and you get back on the boat, for, you know, like it's just lovely sun shining on the beach. But in the first century, right, it would have been really precarious and really dangerous. And the travel we've just heard, like verses, you know, these, these opening verses, right? It's insane, verses 1 to 3. So Miletus, so there's Miletus in the middle. Um, Miletus down to Cos, that would be about a day's travel on the boat. Um, Cos to Rhodes, you know, another day on the boat. Rhodes to Patara, another whole day of sailing. Then it's a, a four-day sail from sort of Patara all the way down to, across to Tyre. Um, then it's a three-day voyage from the coast of um, sort of, uh, what is it? Uh, yeah, down the coast to Caesarea. Um, and then, then it would have been a 24-hour hike from Caesarea into the capital of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know many people who could make it in one day. Probably two days, right? Two days hike to get in to the capital. The whole journey in the scriptures, right, just sort of bounces along. Wow, it sounds incredible. What a beautiful trip. You know, the ancients, right, they would have read this and gone, are you for real? You did all that in two weeks? Exertion of Paul is extraordinary. I kind of feel ashamed, right, when I read about this and think about the places and the distances. I mean, I live in Prospect, and sometimes I have to go to Port Adelaide to minister to people. You know, it's, it's a long way in my air-conditioned car. Oh, the things I do for the gospel. And then I have to sit at a place and eat some good food. Oh, it's just, you know, I'm just like, I'm just like, you know, I had to go to Sydney for the last few days. You know, I had to eat good food and drink some nice coffee and hang out with nice people. The things I do for the gospel. I mean, you are looking at a very soft pastor. The exertion here of Paul and, and the others is quite extraordinary. A friend of mine, he's a church leader, he's a, a bishop in the Anglican Church and he serves as the bishop of the Northern Territory. His parish, his mission field is the Northern Territory. 
Huge, right? Not that many people, right? But it's vast. You know, people are scattered all over the place. He tells stories, right, of, of you know, one of his responsibilities is to care for, you know, God's church and, and the leaders of his church who are often in very, very, very remote places. So he spends sometimes, you know, someone calls him up, hey, Greg, we would love you to come out and visit us, love you to teach the Bible for us, can you come out? So Greg jumps in the four-wheel drive, he drives like three days down, you know, dodgy roads fighting off crocodiles, you know, um, heat, humidity, all that sort of stuff, to roll into town, you know, preach the Bible, encourage some leaders, have a night, and then goes back for three days fighting the crocodiles and the humidity back to his hometown in Darwin. I mean, the exertion is wonderful. I think the exertion here is, is staggering. Then there's, of course, the hospitality that's shown along the way to these people I don't know if you notice the references in Acts 21 to the, the people opening their homes to Paul, verse 4, we stayed with the believers, verse 7, we stayed with the believers, verse 8, we stayed with the believers, verse 16, we stayed with the believers. This is massive hospitality. Paul is probably travelling with 10 to 20 people. And I reckon the believers in all these places are like clambering over each other to kind of say, we want Paul to stay with us, we want Luke to be with us. The hospitality was such an exertion. Again, I mean, sometimes... Adele and I, right, stress out if we've got four people coming over for dinner. You know, we're, we are soft. She's not here, you know, I can say that. No, we're soft. And then, of course, there's the theme of hardship, right, that's just weaved throughout this whole chapter, especially verse 13, right? Agabus says, man, like the person who owns this belt, if you're going to be, you're going to be bound in Jerusalem, it's not going to go very well. And Paul says, like, so what? Verse 13, I'm ready not only to be bound but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that point, right, I stop and I say, what about us? What about our exertion? Yeah, let me just say, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm not here all the time and I don't know you all very, like, you know, intimately well as well as others, but... You know, I wonder, even here at Living Word Bible Church, there may be sort of two groups of people, right? There may be a group of people who, you know, hear this and, and you know, you hear about the exertion and the hospitality and all this sort of stuff, and, and you're here this morning and you don't need to hear, right, that you need to be more strenuously active for the Lord. You need to be doing more things. Some of you probably are working a little too hard for the Lord. Um, at our church, right, we, we have a bunch of people who just are pouring themselves out constantly, volunteers, people who have full-time jobs but are still kind of pouring themselves out all the time. You may have the same here. I, some of us don't need to hear the word, you know, you need to exert yourself some more. But maybe some of us do. Maybe some of us are here and, and you don't think twice about staying up until, I don't know, 2am checking your investments or what's going on in the world around you. And yet you wake up the next morning on Sunday and go, I'm just a little too tired to go to church. I'll just blow it off today. You know, some of us might just have a big day at work and things like that. Oh, I'm just going to blow off my you know, home group tonight. just can't go. Some of us will spend you know, big money on holidays, right? You know, go on those Mediterranean trips. And yet, we'll probably never pay that kind of stuff towards gospel ministry. Some of us will happily bear the ridicule, like in the public square at our workplaces, for our political views. You know, I bear the ridicule for being a follower of the Richmond Football Club and I defend them. When push comes to shove, I can balk, right, at, at defending my Christian worldview or the gospel. Um, some of us, right, yeah, can spend endless hours climbing corporate ladders, getting fit, 
I don't know, but struggle to commit to two hours of church on a Sunday. Um, where I am at church, that ends up being sort of one in two Sundays. So it's, you know, two hours a fortnight. Now, I'm not simply going right this morning here for the guilt trip. You know, you, go, you might say, well, actually, it sounds like you are, Simon. <laughs> like, um, guilt is actually the lowest form of sort of motivation and, and pastorally teaching people. It's, it doesn't work. But I'm just kind of being honest. Um, I'm just being honest. Because here's the thing, right? If, if the gospel is true, right? Sorry, if the gospel isn't true, if the gospel is not true, if Jesus didn't really come into the world, if Jesus didn't actually die for our sins, if, if Jesus didn't rise again to, gave, to give us and grant us scandalously eternal life, then probably two hours a week or two hours a fortnight, that's probably like more than enough, more than, like well and truly. But if it is true, right, what effort is enough? What effort is too much? I'll leave that with you. Paul's exertions, right? Paul's exertions now take him to Jerusalem. And once we, you know, once there we glimpse another aspect of the Christian life, the ministry that's very striking, it kind of leaps out of the page. Have a look at verse 20, Acts 21, verse 20. When they heard this, they praised God. They said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so what will we tell you? So, what do we, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Right, so... So bring you up to speed. Paul has been out and about for many years, right, proclaiming the good news of Jesus. He hasn't been in Jerusalem for a very long time. It seems, though, while Paul's been out and about sharing the good news of Jesus, that he's died for the sins of the world, offers eternal life, and he's coming back, you know, all this sort of stuff, while he's been proclaiming that to the nations, it seems like a whole bunch of Orthodox Jews have come to know that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-promised Messiah back in Jerusalem. So when Paul arrives back in Jerusalem, rumours are abounding, right, that Paul, the apostle, teaches against the law of Moses. And so James, right, he's the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, um, he says to Paul, hey, Paul, like, you know, when you come back, would you consider just embracing a little bit more of your Jewish faith so that, you know, you know, people, you know, people will embrace you and, and, and that sort of stuff? Now, I don't know, right? Um, Knowing what I know about the Apostle Paul, maybe knowing what you know about the Apostle Paul, you know, when someone says, hey, just embrace a bit more of your Jewishness and things like that, my expectation is that Paul would say, are you serious? You've got to be joking. Like, on principle, we're not saved by obedience to the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, that's correct theology, but in a flash, Paul happily does it. It's really cool. Why? Because Paul will do just about anything to win a hearing for the gospel. 
And if that means a slightly more Jewish expression of his faith, he will embrace it with absolute joy. In fact, one year before this incident takes place in Acts 21, we have a statement that Paul himself writes to the, the Corinthian church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the letter he writes there, where he lays out his policy. So 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, one year before this incident, I am, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though myself I am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak, to win the weak. And I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. Keyword, flexibility. Flexibility. See, the gospel had so freed Paul the Apostle that he was actually able to, as required, express his faith in a bit more of a Jewish way. But when he was not around Jews, around Gentiles, he was like, yeah, I, I can eat and do kind of whatever's put before me. This kind of flexibility, I think, is really impressive from Paul. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul actually expects the same kind of flexibility from the believers in Corinth. As they live amongst both Jews and people from the nations, the Gentiles. So I want to put a question to you this morning. I'm going, to tell, I'm going to say the question, and then really briefly, you're going to turn to the person next to you and maybe say, what do you think, if you don't know what to answer it, or you can say the answer. Here's the question, right? And a lot of this, if, if it would reach more people in Modbury or the Northeast with the Gospel... Would you here at Living Word Bible Church happily embrace a service that was filled with sort of old-style liturgy and only hymns on an organ that we brought in? That's the question. If, if it was, if it would reach more people with the good news of Jesus in Mobry, in TTP, in, in the northeast of Adelaide, would you here at Living Word Church happily embrace a church service more loaded with kind of traditional liturgy, and only hymns. All right, turn to the person next to you. What's your answer? What's your response? I'll give you 15.8 seconds. Go for it. Five, four, three, two, one. All right. Would you do it? Do anything. There's a resounding, absolutely. That's the correct answer, right? That's the correct answer. Because we want to see all people one for the gospel. If that was what was going to reach more people, absolutely, we should be willing to do that. When I think of this, right, there's a couple of people come to mind. Their, their names are Jan and Ian. Um, they are in their 70s. Uh, they have had, you know, like a, a pretty, you know, well, depending on, yeah, Jan... A varied kind of upbringing in the church and experience of the church. Um, Ian, more of a traditional kind of Church of England sort of Anglican thing going on. But, you know, when I was at church with these guys, and they're still very good friends of ours, when I was at church with them, they, they happily embraced 
you know, like a morning church at that, in that context, which was, what a better term, a bit sort of bells and smells, you know, that sort of stuff, and, um, you know, robes and all that sort of jazz, you know, collars, all that sort of jazz. And, you know, can you imagine, I used to wear that, you know, I used to wear a dress. No, um, don't worry about it, don't think about that. Um, but they would happily embrace, you know, the, the more traditional style of gathering. But then, you know, they would turn up in the evening, which was, you know, drums and electric guitars and hymns, like we're like, you know, relics of the past. No, we did sing some hymns, but they would happily embrace both. Sometimes they'd come up to me and say, Simon, it's just a bit loud in the night. You know, can you turn the volume down? We'd always turn it up a little bit more, you know, just to kind of rouse them. But they were free from culture. Like, they were free from their kind of cultural preferences. They were free from their personal preferences. They were free from their own kind of rights. They were willing to do kind of anything, really, for the sake of the gospel and the encouragement of God's people. I wonder if we need to think a bit more about that, you know. Are we flexible? Are we willing to do anything? But fourthly, right, you know, despite all that, despite all their best efforts, they couldn't avoid being misunderstood at various points as well. So have a look with me, verse 27 and following. Um, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he's brought the Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They'd previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused. And the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul. They grabbed him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul had reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Get rid of him. Now, just a few comments here. There, there is no way, right, that Paul preached, as verse 28 said, against our people. All Paul would have said is that God <clears throat> loves all people. There's no way that he would have preached against the law of Moses he would have simply said, the law of Moses can't save you. And he didn't preach against the temple. He would have just said, the true sacrifice has come. That's what the whole temple pointed to, Jesus. But despite Paul's best efforts, right, he simply couldn't avoid being misunderstood. And I'm sorry to say, right, there's no way that Paul would have brought that guy Trophimus, the Greek, into the temple. He would never have done that. Um... Paul would have known full well that if he did that, if he brought Trophimus in, Trophimus would have probably been killed because of that. So in those days, there were various parts of the temple where you know, a person, a non-Jewish person, couldn't go. There were signs up around in various parts saying, you know, basically, if you cross this line, you are responsible for your impending thanatos, death. That's pretty welcoming, isn't it? Imagine if that was on the door here. You know, step over into this area and the elders will come and knock you off. No, like, it's, Paul would never have done that because he knew exactly what would have happened. 
But the text in verse 29 says they assumed wrongly that Paul had brought the Greek into the temple. In other words, it's just a misunderstanding. And yet, unfortunately, this is the trigger of Paul's arrest, his beating, his almost death in that context. He gets put in chains, he won't get out of those chains for four years, and then he'll be killed. This is the beginning of the end of Paul. But it's also how the gospel gets to Rome. Kind of at that time, the ends of the earth the centre of the known world. My point is, right, sometimes in the Christian life and sometimes in our mission, we can't avoid misunderstanding. Um, Some people are just so simply opposed to the gospel that all we can kind of do in the face of it is just be gracious and kind of put up with it. You know, some people misunderstand historical things and, and then make sort of these crazy extrapolations about all Christians and all things like that. So, for example, you know, the Crusaders back in the history of the church and stuff, they did some despicable things in the name of Jesus. And yet some people take that and say, see, Christians, they started all the wars of history. Who actually hold that? Um, it's true, there are some Christians around who are anti-science. But that doesn't mean every Christian in general is against science and things like that. It's very true, there are bigoted Christians in our world and people often can extrapolate, right? Therefore, every Christian is mean-spirited and moralistic. Sometimes it doesn't matter, right, how gracious and clear we are. We are going to be misunderstood and we need to bear with grace that misunderstanding, just like the Apostle Paul did. And isn't it interesting, right, in the mystery of God, In the midst of the misunderstanding, the gospel gets to Rome because of this. Yeah, brothers and sisters in Christ here at Living Word Bible Church, when we find ourselves attacked unfairly, we have to ask ourselves the same question that these first century brothers and sisters asked themselves. The same questions that the same question that the Christians in China ask themselves today. The same question that Christians in Nepal have to ask themselves today. The same question that many of our brothers and sisters right now living in parts of the Middle East under the heat of persecution have to ask themselves, and this is the question, is the gospel of Jesus Christ true? Is it true? Because if it isn't true, then surely it's not worth all the trouble. It's not. But if it is true, And that God, in His love, despite the world's faithfulness, sends His Son Jesus into the world to die the most shameful death of all deaths on a Roman cross. Why? So that we can be forgiven, that we can have eternal life, that we can be free and have forever life. If that's true, like if that's true, like I mean, if that's true, true, just irrespective of what other people think about it, then we can absorb the misunderstanding. We can bear the criticism and trust that somehow the gospel still kind of goes on. Even though at the moment you go, you might sit going, I don't know what's going on here. But if it's true, we can absorb the misunderstanding. We bear the criticism because we know even despite all that, the gospel is still moving forward. So let me close by saying this. Women, will you step up into more public ministries because we need you alongside the men, men and women, serving together. Men, will you support and encourage them? 
all of us, will we exert ourselves for Jesus? You know, some of you don't need to do any more. Perhaps some of us really do. I'll leave that with you to think about. Will we all embrace here a greater flexibility when it comes to the gospel? Not wedded to our preferences, not bound to our rights, but happy to give up anything in order to, to, to get a hearing, to reach more people. And will we live in this world as best we can, graciously enduring misunderstanding, knowing that in the mystery of God, the gospel gets to Rome, gets to the ends of the earth? Should we pray together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, please take your word and write it on our hearts. Uh, Lord, yeah, change us uh, that we would be a people shaped by the teaching of the apostles, enlivened by your gospel. Uh, Father, yeah, giving our all um, in the strength that you provide for us with, in, through Jesus, uh, recognising that we are, each one of us, at different stages and different positions in life, we have different capacities and energy levels, but Lord, help us to keep exerting ourselves for the sake of the gospel as we are able to do. Uh, in order, Father, to promote your glory in this suburb, to promote your glory in our city and even among the nations. So Lord, yeah, help us, we pray uh, in Jesus' name. Amen.